Well over two centuries ago, Charles Wesley, gawking in wonder at the passage that we just read here, Luke 2, 1 to 20, went on to write what would eventually become one of the great Christmas hymns of the faith. We sang it a bit earlier, actually. Hark the herald angels, these messenger angels sing, glory to the newborn king. You know, Wesley was right. He was right to echo the angels' refrain, glory. This passage, which we've read and which we will be giving ourselves to afresh today, is just dripping with glory. The glory of God is on display on every corner of this inspired, infallible, inerrant message to us through first the providential edict of a pagan king. The glory of God's on display through a virgin miraculously giving birth. The glory of God is on display through the Messiah's humble beginnings in a manger and through a proclamation from heaven born by angels in resplendent light. There's a lot going on here in this passage. So today, I'd simply like us to focus in on a few things that are not just unique to this particular passage, but a few things in God's truth, God's holy scripture that are also unique to Luke's gospel. If you've uh, been here at FCC for any amount of time, you know we've just begun to work our way together through Luke's gospel, and it's been a, an amazing journey so far. Only in Luke's gospel, friends, do we find Caesar's census, and then the subsequent journey by Mary and Joseph from Nazareth down to Bethlehem, where Jesus would be born. Only in Luke do we find this certain celestial choir who make their debut, <clears throat> excuse me, in the middle of a night to a bunch of ragtag shepherds out in the field. Let's start with the census here. Luke 2, beginning in verse 1. Let's, let's reread with fresh eyes these beginning few verses and see what God has for us in the census of a pagan emperor. In those days, Luke 2, 1, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for him, for them, excuse me, in the end. Now, it may surprise you to hear that Luke describes the actual event of Jesus' birth in just seven verses. Are you counting? This is, this is what everything's been building up to, but when he gets to the actual event of Jesus' birth, he just gives us seven verses, and what makes me scratch my head is that five of those seven verses are spent on Caesar's census, which poses a question, I think. What's up with that? Why did the Holy Spirit inspire Luke to include this for us? 
Why is it important for you and me to know how and why Jesus' parents made this trip from Nazareth down to Bethlehem? Well, for one, I think this is a, it's pretty safe to say, we, we see that this is to highlight the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. In fact, it was the very same prophecy that Benjamin opened our service with this morning. Micah 5, 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. As the fulfillment of prophecy is a very big deal. Think about it. If God's word is inerrant, if God's word to us is infallible, if it's never failing, and if God says there's one who's going to come, whose going forth is from old, who, who is of ancient days, that's another name for God, in his time frame, then the Messiah, who this whose birth this verse is prophesying here in Micah 5, 2, better be born in Bethlehem. If God is true, if God is to be trusted, then we can can push all of our chips in to every word that he has said. He doesn't lie. There's no shadow of turning to him. And God is very good at bolstering the faith of his people by foretelling long before they happen these miraculous events as they go down. Friends, the Messiah had to be born in Bethlehem. But I think there's another reason why we get so much about Caesar's census, right, mixed in here with the birth of Christ. Don't miss the sovereign, providential hand of God here. Not just in the birth itself, the birth of Christ itself, but even in the events leading up to Jesus' birth. You see, God doesn't just ordain what happens. God ordains the means by which they happen. Think about it. The reason why Jesus was born in Bethlehem and not Nazareth, which was his hometown, the hometown of his parents, was that the mighty Caesar Augustus, emperor of Rome, and easily the most powerful man on the planet, decided that for tax purposes, he was going to hold a census. He was going to count up all the people in his vast empire so that he could tax them accordingly. Imagine for a moment what a massive undertaking this was. How far-reaching, how extensive the entire known world is sent scrambling back to their ancestral hometowns. And so for our boy Joseph here, this means he needs to travel from where he's living now in Nazareth, up north by the Sea of Galilee, down to Bethlehem. Now, we've got a map here to project for you. I'm not exactly sure how well you can see it from where you're sitting, but but we don't exactly know the route that was taken by Joseph and Mary. There's, There's really two plausible paths. The first and more direct route from north to south was was about 70 miles. Now, shorter, 70 miles is the shorter path for them to take at nine months pregnant for Mary. Although, 
it was the more harsh of the two paths. And you, you had to go, if you were taking the straight path, through the dreaded region of Samaria, which most people were quite averse to as, uh, as good Jews during that time. So the other route that they could have possibly taken, and the text is silent on this, we don't know exactly what path they took, was, was a more circuitous route, which would have followed the Jordan River Valley a little bit to the east. Generally speaking, this was an easier path, although it did have its own dangers. Again, um, the going rate on average was about 20 miles a day on foot, but don't forget, Mary is full term. She is nine months pregnant. So you can take any calculations that you might be making in your brain, 70 miles, 90 miles, how much time, and just throw them out the window, because who knows what pace that she was able to keep. The bottom line is, of course, that this was a long and grueling trip. By the way, it's worth noting, this is no mere coincidence, that Bethlehem, Joseph's hometown, the place where Jesus would be born, Bethlehem means literally house of bread. And you'll remember, I hope, what Jesus says when he steps onto the scene. He says, I am the bread of life. But that's probably just a coincidence, right? And think about it. How fitting is it that God would ordain that the bread of life would come up out of the house of bread? God's purposeful in everything that he does. All right, back, back to Caesar. I want you to see this. Ask yourself, what is Caesar's motivation for this census? The answer is pretty obvious. It's money, right? Caesar wants money. It costs a lot of money to run an empire, to, to wage wars, and to put down all the rebellions on the perimeter. Money is Caesar's motivation. And yet, although he has his reasons for this census, we can see quite clearly that who was working behind the scenes? God is clearly at work. Proverbs 21 one is a good thing to remind ourselves of from time to time. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. We've been reciting that verse relatively frequently lately as we've been working through this fall, the, the book of Esther. We were reminded again and again and again that, that God is sovereign. Though rulers have significant power, Though they are making their own decisions of their own accord, God is above it all, turning the heart of the king like a water force in his hand. He is in control. Who put Caesar in power? Well, Romans 13 spells it out. If you want to go look that up a little bit more, Romans 13 is quite clear. It was God. God establishes, God ordains every authority for his purposes. God put Caesar there. Who used Caesar's policies, his edicts, listen, even his tax policies, as self-motivated as they were, to accomplish his greater purposes? God did this. It's kind of like R.C. Sproul famously said once, there are no maverick molecules in the universe. He's over it all. Listen, friends. 
if we want to bring this into 2022 today, I don't know who you think is calling the shots right now, but I can assure you it is not President Biden. It is not Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos or George Soros. It's not the leaders of China or Russia or the United Nations. It's not the Federal Reserve or the IMF. It's not even Satan himself. I love what Martin Luther penned. We sing it still from time to time. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. There is no power from Caesar on his throne to the powers that be at work today in 2022. No power in heaven or on earth who can thwart the sure and unswerving purposes of God. Let me remind you this Christmas. His name is El Elyon, God Most High. And he is the one who governs galaxies and superintends over every cell in your body. So rest easy, dear Christian, for Caesar had the world scrambling. Mary and Joseph are trekking nine months pregnant over the unforgiving Middle Eastern terrain to do the biddings of mighty Caesar. And yet God is behind it all, turning the course of the king's heart like a watercourse in his hand, commissioning an obscure carpenter and his wife from backwater village in Nazareth to get to the place where he had prophesied, where he had foretold the Messiah would come. He's in control. I love how simply the big picture story Bible puts it. I read a lot of story Bibles these days in this season of my life. I'm not sure if you can, you can read that, but this is taken right out of that, that story Bible. By the way, if you're a young a parent or parents of young children, grandparents of young children, uh, this is a fantastic resource, the Big Picture Story Bible. There's Not all Bibles are created equal. Certainly not all children's Bibles are created equal. And this one does a fantastic job of working biblical theology so you can see Christ through the entire biblical story. Here's, here's how the Big Picture Story Book Bible, excuse me, the Big Picture Story Bible puts it. While Caesar, the king of the Roman world, was showing everyone how great he was by counting all his people... God, the king of the universe, was showing the world how great he was by sending his son to the world as one of his people. Isn't that good? Right out of a children's Bible. So, follower of Jesus. Here's what I'm trying to say. Do not despair this Christmas. The powers of this world in our day may be flexing their muscles, but their leash is very short, and your in eternal inheritance in Jesus is very, very long. I don't know how 2022 has panned out for you as we sit at the end. I don't know whether your Christmas plans are coming together nicely or beginning to fray apart, but I want to remind you that there is nothing that happens that will not ultimately work for the glory of our sovereign king and for the good of us, his people. When you're tempted, and perhaps you are, this December 18th, to throw up your hands and wonder if it's worth it. 
Think of Caesar's census and remember, God is working in ways, friend, that you cannot see. His purposes will prevail, and he will have the victory. All right, let's keep working through our our text here. In the eyes of the world, there's nothing really remarkable that's happening here in Luke chapter 2. This child whom we worship, this Christ child, enters into the sea of humanity without so much as a ripple. No real big fanfare, no big to-do surrounding his birth. He comes in poverty. He comes in obscurity, in humility. They don't even feel the need to create room for him in the end. Like the Apostle John would say in his gospel, he came unto his own. And his own people didn't know him. His own people did not receive him, John 1, 11. But the scene in heaven is very different than the scene on earth. Because all of history hinges here on this moment. God is sending his son to save us. So God sends heaven to earth in this moment. He sends an angel And then later, an army of angels to proclaim the majesty and the mystery of what's about to unfold here. And this account, this account of the angels' proclamation to the shepherds is also unique to Luke. We don't read about this in any of the other gospel accounts. So let's let's check it out. Verse 8, we'll pick up our story uh, and we'll, we'll read further. Luke 2, 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory, glory to God in the highest. And on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Don't you love that? Good news, great joy, all people. But the shepherds, admittedly, the shepherds weren't quite there yet, were they? The shepherds aren't even in the right zip code at the beginning. They are straight up terrified. Look at verse 9 with me. Verse 9 says, they were filled with great fear. Literally, these words from Greek to English are phobos mega. Phobos, the word where we get our phobia in English. Phobos mega. Mega means big. It means huge. That's that's the Greek here. Phobos mega. Translation, these shepherds were petrified. They were shaken in their sandals. Although their fear is about to give way and melt into peace, to dissolve into, into pure, raw joy. Because what the angel is about to tell these guys will change everything. By the way, 
if you map out this statement, if you map out these words chronologically, what you'll find is these words by the angel to the shepherds are the first recorded words about Jesus after his birth in all of Scripture. The first words that God gives us about the newborn king. So they're significant on a number of different ways. Now, now the angel starts not with the good news itself. He starts by prefacing the news that he's about to give. And he tells us three important things, three distinctives about this great news. Here's where he starts. He tells them and, and us, by extension in verse 10, what kind of news it is that he's bearing. And the news is, it's good. It's good. This is actually the root word for our word today, gospel. This is good news. This is gospel news, excuse me, that the angel has to bear. Then he tells us what this news is going to produce. Namely, great joy to those who receive it. Probably appropriate for us just to press the pause button for a moment and ask, has that been the result of your Advent season? Has the reminder of Christ's incarnation in any way, regardless of the circumstances that surround you in your life, has it bubbled up within you joy? To remember that your God, Emmanuel, has come to you. That's good news. That, that news ought to do something to you. It ought to produce joy. And lastly, the angel says, before I tell you the news, you got to know who it's for. He says, here's the scope of this news. It's for not just the Jews. This is news for all. In other words, this news is for you. This news is for, for me. This news is for all. So with that out of the way, the angel sort of starts by helping us grasp how big of a deal what he's about to say in verse 11 is. And finally, he gets to the heart of his pronouncement. These are the first words, as I've mentioned, about Christ after his birth. In all the New Testament. Look at verse 11. Here's what he says. For unto you is born this day in the city of David. Where's that? Bethlehem. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. It's kind of interesting, I think. We see another triad. The angel just gave us three things to set up his announcement about Jesus. Good news, great joy, all people. And now he gives us another list of three. He says about Christ, three things. He gives us three dimensions of this child that we need to grapple with. Verse 11, he says, this child will be Savior. This child will be Christ. And this child is the Lord. Savior, Christ, Lord. The reason he came, the reason for Christmas, we should remind ourselves as we're getting ready to celebrate Jesus' birth, is Easter. He came to save us, to quote Matthew, as 
Gabriel shows up to another trembling individual, this time Joseph, telling him not to divorce Mary. He says, hey, the child in her, I know it doesn't make sense, Joseph, but the child in her is of the Holy Spirit, and I want to let you know why he's coming. Matthew 1, 21, he will save his people from their sins. That's Christmas. That's why he came. I want to remind you, as we celebrate the birth of Jesus, he came for your eternal salvation. The second thing the angel tells us about him is, is not just that he's Savior, but that he is the Christ, which is just a Greek way of saying this is the Messiah. This is the one that we've been waiting for. Now, I find this interesting because isn't this what people keep on asking Jesus in his adult ministry? Could this be him? Could this be the Christ? Or they've got their panties all in a wad because, because they think he is claiming to be the Christ. And this is just the big, hairy question. Is, is he the chosen one? Is he the Christ? Well, I mean, if you're going to take heaven's word for it, the answer is a resounding yes. The first thing said about Jesus, do you remember? Publicly to the shepherds, shared with Mary. Mary, did you know? Yes, she did. The angel shows up and says, Psst. This is the Messiah. We would do well to remember the beginning of the story. The first thing spoken over this baby boy is that he's the Savior, that he's the Messiah. And lastly, thirdly, that he is God. He is the Lord. I hope you don't rush past verse 11 this December, this Christmas season. Remember this Advent as we take time to look back and celebrate with joy the first coming of our King. The three designations given to him from heaven. This is Savior. This is the Savior. This is the Messiah. This is your God. want to draw your attention to one more important word. Sorry to be geeking out on you with so much Greek, but, but it's important. I want, I want to tease out these truths with you. Look, look at this word at the beginning of verse 13. We see, and suddenly there appeared a multitude of heavenly hosts. That word suddenly can also be translated immediately, abruptly, even instantaneously. So don't miss this. The angel just drops the gospel. He just drops this mind-numbingly good news for the shepherds here. Your Messiah has come. Your Savior is here. And then after telling him exactly where they can find him, which was a bit of an unconventional place, not many babies in Bethlehem sitting in a manger, I would wager, before they even have time to process this news, bam, Luke tells us, suddenly, immediately, are you, you see, in response to this news, 
an angel of, sorry, I said that backwards, an army of angels, there we go, say that ten times fast, an army of angels appears, and I do want to stand by that phrase, that's the right word, army, the Greek word here is hosts in verse 13, literally it means hordes. It means a vast multitude. Some of your English translations render it that way. Luke tells us there were myriads of these angels. A multitude. That's why he uses the word plethos, where we get our word plethora from. That word's amazing, isn't it? In the words of my late grandfather, then, there is probably more angels up there than you can shake a stick at. That's the way he would talk. So, our question then becomes this. Why? Why are they there? Why did God rend the heavens and send a a host, a vast army of angels down to make their debut singing to a ragtag bunch of shepherds in a field at the middle of the night? Two things. Their purpose was, first... To praise God. That's always first. To glorify God. And that's what they say. If you're looking at their song, verse 14, glory to God in the highest. That's what they start with. Praise to God. Glory to God. And then, secondly, they say peace. Peace. This is the fourth weekend of Advent. When we remind ourselves that because Jesus has been born to us, because he's come, we have peace. And that word gets thrown around pretty cheaply, but that word means more than just an absence of conflict. Peace is a deep inner soul reality, that it is well with my soul kind of bedrock confidence. Peace is biblical peace, shalom, peace, because this baby has come. Now, I find this a bit strange and fascinating. One biblical commentator, I can't take credit for this thought, but uh, I, I think he winsomely puts it this way. Leon Morris makes the observation that God sends out an army, and what does the army announce? Peace. And that's exactly what happens, friends. When you, when I meet this Prince of Peace, that's what he's called elsewhere. That's exactly what happens when he pours out his peace, his shalom, that inner well being. When you've got him, nothing else matters. This is our prayer. Here at Friendship Community Church, this Advent season, that you, friend, that I, that we would be subsumed, that we would be swallowed up in the peace of Christ. That we we would remember this amazing story. That we wouldn't forget the census of mighty Caesar and say, in the midst of whatever it is, God is in control. That we would remember this heaven-born proclamation by the celestial army 
It's good news of great joy for all people. That Jesus is Savior. That Jesus is Messiah. That Jesus is Lord. Well, if the angels broke out in song in response to this news, then there's probably an appropriate lesson for us there too. And I think that's a... That's a fitting way for us to close. So we're, do, we're just going to apply this verse as the heavenly host did. And we'll join the angels from the realms of glory as we sing and pray. Come and worship. Come and worship. Worship Christ, the newborn king. Would you pray before we sing? Lord, thank you. Thank you for helping us to see that in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of, of a pagan world system that is, that is bucking against your word and your ways, you are still on the throne. You are still sovereignly in control and you are working your purposes in the midst of the macro plan and our micro lives. God, may we have joy. May you, may you build within us greater confidence this Christmas season as we think back to the, the chaos of this census and what it meant for Joseph and Mary and, and your higher purposes breaking through. Lord, we pray that we would see Christ afresh as Savior, as our Messiah, our Christ, our King, and our God. And help us to line up our lives in big and little ways. Help us to build perspective in a clearer and greater way that we would worship you with whole hearts. That's what we're asking, God. All our heart and soul and mind and strength to be brought under conformity to the rulership of this great king. So we, we sing to you now. Lord, work in our hearts through the power of your Holy Spirit as we utter these words to you. Help us to come and worship. Come and worship. Worship you, Jesus Christ, our newborn King. We pray in your name. Amen.